but we want to uh, pray, and then we'll pick up in chapter 4, 41. I know we talked about everybody's going to read that on their own, but I want to go through it real quick to make sure we understand where we're at. So let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Deuteronomy that displays your goodness and your grace towards people, and it is a calling of Israel and a commissioning of them to live in holiness and righteousness. And God, that is such a call as we need in the church today. Not that we are keepers of the law, but that we have your truth drilled into our hearts, that we're not any longer operating um, in a fear of your chastisement, but Lord, we're operating because of a profound love that we have for you. Uh, and so I pray, Father, add these things to our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So now, let me give a little breakdown real quick. Do you guys need papers? Corey, you guys need papers? Okay. Uh, let me give you a little breakdown real quick. We are going through Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is set up in something very interesting known as a suzerain vassal. Here you go, two more. Treaty. A suzerain vassal treaty. What's that? You need the long one, okay. Just want to make sure. Uh, the suzerain vassal treaty. The idea of suzerain is a high king. A vassal is a lesser king, but still has an uh, area or responsibility of rulership is the idea. Uh, it's really nice because Sunday's message is going to go well with what we're looking at here. And so whenever they were unearthing, I believe it was in the early 1900s in an archaeological dig over in that area, um, if you probably dealt more up where Syria would be located, you were dealing with what became known as the destination of the Hittite civilization. And when they unearthed it, they actually found a lot of these uh, cuneiform tablets or whatever it is I think that you want to call, they were written in a certain fashion known as a suzerain vassal treaty. And the idea is the, is the king presenting himself and giving reasoning as to why he should be obeyed and worshipped and followed, and in exchange for that, he would turn around and bless with safety and provision the lesser kings who pay tribute to him. So that's the type of, of idea we have here. To give you a rundown, in chapter 1, verses 1 through, uh, let's see here, um, 5, you have the introduction, and then you have from chapter 1, verse 6, all the way unto chapter 4, verse 40, you have what's known as the historical prologue. And the idea is, this is who God is, and this is what He has done. Which you will know from Exodus 15, that is the contents of what makes up worship. Who God is and what God has done. It is praising Him, extolling Him, and expounding upon those things, and especially on telling other people about the great acts of the Lord and who He is. When we get to this point at the end of 40, Moses wraps up all of this information about the historical prologue. Here's where you were. Here's what God did. Here's where he led you. Here's where you conquered. Here's the land that you had. And now he's brought you to this point. Be faithful to him. Verse 41. <clears throat> then Moses set apart three cities across the Jordan to the east that a manslayer might flee there who unintentionally slew his neighbor without having enmity toward him in time past. And by fleeing to one of these cities, he might live. Why? Because if you were there, and one of the examples that Scripture gives is you're chopping wood, and when you go to sling your axe back to chop wood, the axe head flies off of your axe and clubs somebody in the head and kills them. Unintentionally, person died, you didn't have any malice towards them, it wasn't the Hatfields and McCoys, 
I guess you'd have to add some gutturals to that for it to be Jewish. But anyway, uh, in, in doing that, it wasn't some dispute that was going on. It was an accident that happened. Well, regardless if it was an accident, the family at that time of the person who died is going to want some restitution for their life gone, and chances are they're going to want to kill that person because of it. And so there were cities that were set apart in order for them to flee to, sanctuary cities where they could still have a living, they could still exist in peace without fear of their lives being taken from them. So notice what it says here. Um, and, and real quick, uh, Mitch, can we just bring up the map that we had earlier for today? If we could bring that up so we could show it. Uh, it says here, um, verse 43, Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau for the Reubenites. So the idea of Bezer is located right here. Does everybody see it, Bezer? Right here, that's one sanctuary city that we're dealing with on that edge of Reuben. Notice the next one says, and Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites. Ramoth, Ramoth Gilead right there. And it's interesting how this goes up like this. It's like a little tail that's out to the side. Uh, right before you get into Manasseh. And then the next section here, uh, see here, and Golan in Bashan for the, the Manassites. Now everybody see up top here, here's Golan. Okay? So you got here, you've got here, and you've got here. These are all sanctuary cities to go. And notice that each one is residing in the province that that certain tribe has already come in and take possession of. And if you remember their requirements were, that we saw in Leviticus was, you can go ahead and start setting up shop and you can leave your wife and kids there, but your men are to move forward and to help us dominate the rest of the land and to take it over uh, and to bring harem on top of the Canaanites there for their rebellion and disobedience and evil. And then once they settle in their section, you can go back and, and finish settling your section. So you've got one here in Reuben. You've got one there in Gad. You've got one there in Manasseh. Does everybody see that? Yes? We're good? Who's asleep? Okay. Nobody's excited about that. Okay. Verse 44. Now this is the law which Moses set before the sons of Israel. These are the testimonies and statutes and the ordinances which Moses spoke to the sons of Israel when they came out from Egypt, across the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Now Beth means house of, when we talk about Beth El, house of God, El being God, Elohim. This is house of Peor. In the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the sons of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. Now, Beth Peor, just to show you where that's at real quick, we're dealing with this region right here. Okay, So notice, here's Heshbon, Mount Nebo right there, and that's actually, I believe, where Moses goes up to see over uh, into the Promised Land, and he dies on that mountain. Right here would be considered uh, where, we're, where we're talking about there. Uh, let's see here. Verse 47, They took possession of his land, in the land of Og, king of Bashan, and the two kings of the Amorites who were across the Jordan to the east, from Ar Aror, which is in the edge of the valley of Arnon, even as far as Mount Sion, that is, Hermon. Now, Mitch, can we zoom out real quick? Remember, the level of land that they took in this is located from right here. See Aror right here? All the way up into this section here, here's Mount Hermon. Remember, it's 140 miles long. When we talked about the initial... Uh, uh, expedition of the 12 spies they came in they went up and they came back down it's because it was 240 miles all the way up and they actually went up into this region here when they came back so it was, it was 480 miles round trip that they dealt with 
Um, so they're conquering that side would be the east side of that land. It says here, verse, uh, verse 49, uh, with all the Arabah across the Jordan to the east, even as far as the Arabah as the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. So the Arabah would be in the eastern section with that border would be up through there. So chapter 5, verse 1, then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them. Now I haven't figured out if this is a if, they, if this is a uh, separate occasion, maybe he gave them a break a little while to digest and come back. We know that the book of Deuteronomy, um, time-wise, was probably the totality given over a month's period. But I don't know that there's any particular divisions of, and you know, then everybody went home and hung out for the weekend, and then when they came back on Monday, here's what Moses said. I don't know that we have anything like that. But it seems that it's a brand new start of something. And just so you know, some of you are keeping track uh, of the outline of this book from when we first started it, the first three or four Sundays we started it, and I gave you uh, the outline of the entire book according to the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. This right here is known in the Suzerain Vassal language as the general stipulations. That's what this is known as, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. And so from chapter 5, verse 1, until chapter 11, verse 32, which we won't get to until 2032, uh, that's going to consist of the general stipulations that are laid forward. That's what they're called, general stipulations from chapter 5, verse 1 until chapter 11, verse 32. So here's what he says. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing that you may learn them and observe them carefully. This is an important tenet that we need to get that will serve us well as New Testament church age Christians. Know and do. Know and do. It's real simple. Know and do. The problem that you have typically, and I'm not picking on anybody in particular, please understand that, but the problem that typically characterizes a Bible church, that's considered Bible church part of the IFCA, that whole deal, is the fact that there's a lot of knowing and little doing. That seems what goes on. We got all of our doctrine straight. I'm here to tell you, if your doctrine is not manifested in your actions and your love for one another and serving one another, considering others better than yourselves, that type of thing, we really don't know sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is not fully known until it's fully displayed. In fact, I would go as far as to say, and I'll repeat this over and over in the hermeneutics class, you don't even really have the Word of God until you are applying it to your life. You don't. Because the Word of God was given for one reason, to change our lives, to change our thinking, to change us from destitute and sinful beings into people who not only know God and have a relationship with Him through Christ, but are living lives in such a way as to where it seeks to reflect Christ at all times. Very important difference there. In fact, here's what's interesting. You ever, how many of you are familiar in Acts whenever Paul is, is conversing with the Athenians? And, they, and you read that verse, it says, and the men here did nothing but spend all day uh, telling or knowing something new. Does everybody remember that? It was always like, who's got the latest thing that came out? Well, what just came out in the newsstands for you? You know, it's like everybody was hanging out at Harvard or something like that. Well, I got a new thought. Well, I got a new idea. And, and, and that's all it was, was just constantly, what's the new thing? What's the new thrill? What's the new whatever it is that's going on? That's the way that Greek society, which Hellenism, it poured over into the Roman culture. That's how they thought about when they said the word, oh, I know that, is the idea. When you deal with a Jewish understanding of what it is to know 
something, right? Whenever we saw in Exodus, that they may know that I am Yahweh and there is none like me. Everybody remember whenever God was making that point to the, to the, uh, to the Egyptians and especially to the Israelites at that time. The idea of a Jewish knowing is not just that you are affirming a knowledge that is true or you're accepting an assent mentally to something like that. It's the idea of actually embracing it. It's a conviction that overtakes you is the idea. What's interesting is, is that's the same idea of what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, does that mean that you have to be an obedient person in order to be saved? It's not what it says at all. But what it does say is that what you are affirming when you come in contact with the gospel has so struck you in such a way as to where life is going to be different because of the truth that you now affirm. Does everybody see that? Okay, that's important. That's important to understand. Any questions about that before we move forward? This whole idea is knowing and doing. That's the point he's getting at. Because here's what you're going to do if after a while. You're going to go, I am so sick of Moses saying, here are the ordinances and, and, and the decrees and all this stuff. So you'll observe them and keep them. He says that all the time. Why do you think Moses says that so much? Anybody want to guess? Huh? To drive it home. If for no other reason, they're people. That's a reason why. And I don't know about you, but we have to told, be told something millions of times before we finally grasp it. Or here's the frustrating thing, right? Especially us guys. Our wife was telling us the answer the whole time. But it wasn't until we heard it from such and such three days later that we said, you know what, I should be doing this. And then that's when the wife is like, all right, she starts retreating to the prayer closet at that moment. So, so notice verse 2, the Lord, Yahweh, our Elohim, made a covenant with us at Horeb, a covenant. It's a contract. What is the name of the contract, the covenant that was made at Horeb? Uh, nope. Not the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant. Some people know it as the Mosaic covenant. Somebody, some people know it as the Deuteronomic covenant. I don't know how you say that. Deuteronomic, I think is what it is, covenant. But it's got different names. The Sinaitic covenant is what it's called. But here's the big difference. The Abrahamic covenant... The Davidic covenant, we haven't covered that yet, but you're probably familiar with that. The new covenant, Jeremiah, all of those are unconditional covenants. They're all based on the faithfulness of Yahweh God alone. What made the Sinaitic covenant so different, the one that was given to Moses, when, he, when, when, when the Lord audibly spoke to everybody at the bottom of the mountain, is it is conditional in nature. You will receive these blessings. You will get this inheritance if... You follow me fully. If you obey me, if you submit to my law, if you keep my commandments. That's the reason why knowing and doing is so important. Apart from doing, there is no blessing. Apart from doing, God's hand is taken back. And that's a scary place to be. Okay? So when he says this, we've got to get beyond this whole like, well, it's just an agreement they made. No, 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 no. It's conditional in nature, and that's important because conditions have to be met in order for there to be success. Verse 3, Yahweh did not make the covenant, make this covenant with our fathers, but with us and fathers, he's speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Patriarchs is the idea he's dealing with. It's the idea of this isn't unconditional in nature like that one with them. But notice, but with us, and he says here, with those of us alive here today. Now pause for a second. Why? I mean, we just, we just went over this and we weren't able to cover it fully. I would still be preaching if that was the case of what we were covering. 
But why does he say with us who are alive here today? The generation out of Egypt has died. Did they live up to the covenant? No. And notice, because they didn't keep their end of the covenant, God was not responsible for keeping up His. Now what's interesting is, is when Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and he prays, and God says, I will pardon their sin for this, they still die. You say, wait a second, I thought God pardoned their sin. He did. He didn't kill them immediately. He left them alive. He allowed them to still live for the time being. But the big point was they couldn't inherit the land. Not this generation. Not this time. Sorry, guys. We're going to have to wait it out. And so now this generation is coming on the scene, having been thoroughly educated with their past, just recently, right? What we just read in those first four chapters. So that they will not make the same mistakes again. So notice what he says and how Moses describes this. Yahweh, verse 4, Yahweh spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. Remember, that's Exodus 20, verses 1 through 20. Pivotal, pivotal moment in the Old Testament. Everyone needs to know where that's located at and what exactly happened, especially the audible revelation of Yahweh. And it says here, verse 5, While I was standing between Yahweh and you, at that time to declare to you the word of Yahweh, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. Now, now notice that. Moses is acting as a mediator in between the two parties. And he's describing that event at Sinai. Now it's interesting, it's for you and for you today. In other words, he is going to go back and reiterate the same ten words to the people that were initially given to the first generation. Now, that's why you have something like this page here with both sides going on. So on the left-hand side, what you've got is you've got the Exodus account, front and back, of the ten words. And on the right-hand side, you have the Deuteronomy account, which we're getting ready to read. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is maybe keep your Bible to the side if there's anything you want to mark or look at, but have your paper out so that you can look because we're going to compare back and forth what we see when there's a variation in play. So chapter 5 of Deuteronomy verse 6, notice it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now notice this. Pause for just a second. I'm sorry, I have to bring this up. Notice that this in and of itself is like a declaration to the people. He tells us who He is. He is Yahweh, your Elohim. That's who He is. And then He explains what He has done. Here is the preamble, who's talking, and then the idea of the historical significance that has just happened, or the prologue, the historical prologue of what has happened. The reason why you should listen to me, if you want to know what influence I've had in your life, it's because I've delivered you from slavery. So notice it's almost got its own little... Uh, uh, introduction and historical prologue in the beginning of these commandments. And he says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name 
of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your Elohim. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and Yahweh your Elohim brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your Elohim commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as Yahweh your Elohim has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which Yahweh your Elohim gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. There is the beginning of the general stipulations. Now here's the reason why I read through them. It's probably because we're going to spend today and probably all of next Sunday, Sunday school time, just dealing with these Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments cannot be focused on enough because there are so many facets going on here. So let me give you an example. If you look down through and you compare just the general that we have, we'll start very generally and then we'll work our way in. Between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 and the recounting of the law, where do you see some differences start to creep in in those two? Okay? Okay? So notice what, what, uh, what Jerry is saying is in Deuteronomy 5, 14, you have extra words in there you can just tell that from the size of the paragraph being side by side can't you there's a little bit more going on there and the reason why that might be going on there is for some clarity we got something before that though okay notice that in verse 8 you have remember the sabbath day to keep it holy in exodus but in verse 12 you have observed the sabbath day to keep it holy as the lord your god commanded you so notice it's the addition of God's command to keep it holy. But the difference also is in what? Remember and observe. Let me show you why. Think about what's going on in Exodus when the children of Israel come out and they are for the first time receiving instruction and they are hearing God's audible voice. And what he tells them at that time is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Hebrew word here is zekor. Let me spell it for you. Z, long A, K-O-R, Z, long A, that don't mean write your A long, that means write an A with a long line over the top of it, good job, and K-O-R, okay, and here's what that word means, it means to name something, to mention something, to remember something, or to take something to court is the idea, in other words, it's like a historical moment in time uh, that is being set up, this is, this is the initial command. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. They didn't have this before. 
So this is something brand new. It's a commemoration of something. But notice what's interesting about that is when you look over in Deuteronomy 5.12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This word observe is the word samor. It is S long A M O R. Samor. Samor, I guess is what we would say. Samor is the idea. And it actually means, and this is really interesting, to keep, to watch, and to guard is the idea. That you're actually guarding something. So notice, the first instance in Exodus 20 is a commemoration day that was given. And what was the reasoning? Just don't, don't look at your paper, but think for a minute. What was the reasoning that God gave to commemorate that, that, that Sabbath day in Exodus 20? What was the reason? Creation, right? Six days, the Lord your God worked. And on the seventh day, He rested. And if you remember, we talked about how when you use Scripture to compare with Scripture and to interpret Scripture, God clearly gives you in Exodus 20 that it's six days of literal days of creation and then a seventh literal day of rest. You use that in order to completely discern and interpret for you what was meant in Genesis 1. It all works out just fine, using Scripture for Scripture. So notice it's a historical commemoration because of the idea of creation in play. But is that how it's used in Deuteronomy 5? Is it? It's not, is what you see. The idea of guarding the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, watching over it. Think about that. It's almost like you're thinking about setting up, setting up uh, military around the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And what's the reason it's given? Well, notice 13, verse 13, six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day not do any work. And there is an addition there. Notice that it says, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Everybody see that at the end? That's an addition. Now, everybody hold on to your hats, and this gets real uncomfortable with people because they have a lot of, uh, of, of, of 18th century mindsets about what slavery was back in this time, and they're not the same. That's the idea of slavery, letting your slaves rest. Does that immediately cause tension with anybody? Hopefully not. Because a lot of what we understand about slavery is because we sit down and we watch Roots at one time or something like that. That's not the same type of slavery that we're talking about going on in the Exodus or Deuteronomy account. In fact, what you find is that somehow how people ended up slaves was when they didn't have anything to feed their family. And so they, they bought themselves out as indentured servants to their fellow Israelites. Yeah, it's not necessarily foreigners. It's not like we just picked up a bunch of random guys along the way and therefore we just automatically made them slaves. It's not what it is. Sometimes it was your fellow Israelite that was trying to provide for their family and so the only means they could do that was by serving someone who was a wealthier Israelite in order to come underneath their care and provision. So notice, why in the world would it say there at the end, thinking of the idea of slavery and it could be your fellow countrymen, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you? What would that do? Laverne, you got people that work for you, don't you? Milk cows for you? You ever give them a day off? Why? Well, just servants, you know? They're just servants. I mean, why not, why not work them to the hill? Huh? Notice that. Notice it removes any air of superiority if you may happen to have a servant in your stead. 
Having a servant was never a means to stand up and beat your chest and go, look what we have, kind of thing like that. No, it was to cultivate this idea of making sure that everything that you owned, including the people that worked for you to observe the Sabbath, was an idea of humility. Everybody's coming under this. Everybody's reverencing the Lord. Everybody gets a break. Why? Because they are human. Because they're people that deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. That's the idea that comes with this. Now notice how it moves on. Verse 11 over in Exodus. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. There's our creation account, right? But look over in verse 15 of Deuteronomy. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. How come the first instance in Exodus is a creation remembrance? And the second occurrence here in Deuteronomy 5 has this idea of bringing your mindset back to where you once were in Egypt. I mean, 40 years have passed. The oldest people at this time, besides Moses, would have been what? 59 years old. Everybody that was 20 and over died. So you have Moses and a bunch of 59-year-olds and less remembering this instance. They may have had some inkling, some fraction of what went on in the time of slavery. We think. Oh, that's interesting. How, how were the Egyptians working them? What did that culture look like? I mean, it had to be pretty severe because remember, Pharaoh got so mad at one time, he's like, you know what? We're not even going to get your straw for you. Go get your own straw. Go out there. Still got to meet your quota. We're just going to make it a little bit harder for you. What are you thinking? Corey, did you have something? Okay. None of the, those, maybe they were too young to experience the slavery and not remember what it was. But notice it wasn't, so forget where you come from and act like you're entitled for everything. Boy, that speaks to this generation today, doesn't it? Stop acting like you're so entitled and, and remember, there are people that fought and died for you to be able to curse your president. That kind of stuff. I mean, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So notice, it's the idea of keeping everybody level-headed is the idea. Remember, if you own slaves and you're getting ready to set up in this civilization and you're getting ready to have a working business that goes on with maybe some of your fellow countrymen that are working for you in the situation, treat them right. Treat them with respect. Remember at one time you were in that situation. Remember at one time that was you. And you didn't appreciate how you were treated by the Egyptians. And the Lord had to step in with His arm and destroy everything and graciously rescue out of it when you probably didn't deserve to be rescued. He loved you anyway. Keep that mindset as you're dealing with other people. Interesting, isn't it? How about the next one? What else do we see is different? I'll give you a hint. Turn your paper over. Blessed to work with, right? What else is different here? Honor your father and mother is different. Notice it says, verse 12 of the Exodus side, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Did that happen for them? By and large, no, they died. They didn't inherit the land. Notice verse 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. Notice, as it's already been told you. In other words, I'm not telling you anything new that you didn't get back in Exodus 20. It's the same thing. But look what he says. That your days may be prolonged and that it may go what? 
well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. Does everybody see there has to do something with self-preservation in honoring your father and your mother? The Lord will not allow it to go. The Lord will not bless you if you don't do this. It's like when we're told in 1 Peter 3, 7, I think it is, uh, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as your co-heirs, knowing that by not doing so, it will hinder your prayers. Imagine that. Imagine as a husband, you're praying to God, but because you're not honoring your wife, the Lord's not listening to you. That is not anywhere I want to be. What's that tell you? I need to get right with God. It's interesting. The way to get right with God in that situation is to get right with your wife and to treat her with honor. It's the same idea here. Honoring father and mother. Why? Not just so you'll stay in the land a long time, but so that the Lord will bless you. Because guess what? They come hand in hand. You don't honor your father and mother, He'll kick you out of the land. He kicks you out of the land, no blessing. Done. God doesn't mince words about it. We also see another one. Where do we see the next one? 17 and 21. Look at 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now look at 21. Tell me where it's different. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not uh, desire your neighbor's house, his field. What's that? Okay, notice that property and land is brought up. Notice that property and land here is significant. Why is that? For what reason? Because they're getting ready to get land. They didn't have land before. And here's what you're going to find as we read through the rest of Deuteronomy. Boundary markers were serious business with God. Property markers. You have somebody come out, an assessor or somebody, and they survey your land and they give you property markers? You better not build something on the other side of that or what? You're in trouble. You're in trouble. You'll get sued. You'll be asked to tear down whatever it was that you did. You'll have to buy that plot of land in order to make it light. I mean, it's serious business. And it was with God. He was all about fair dealings with people. You never had land before. But when you get in land, here's how you're going to use it. But there's another thing that sticks out there as well. Something else that sticks out huge. Wife comes before house. <laughs> Did you say that before? Was I not listening or something? Okay. What do you think about this? Why is it? I mean, think with me for a second. 40 years has passed, okay? Exodus 20, verse 17. Wife's in there, your neighbor's wife. But now in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21, somehow neighbor's wife made it up to the front. Notice it's not just wife. It's somebody else's wife. Right? It's a, I want Jesse's girl. Right? Rick Springfield, anybody remember that? Why can't I find a woman like that? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about your neighbor's wife. Why does the neighbor's wife get jettisoned up to the front? It was probably a problem, would you say? Maybe taking somebody else's wife for granted? I think you hit it. I think you know what it is. It's a problem. You get a whole bunch of people together over a period of 40 years. I mean, let's, let's be honest. How are we living in a, in a moral and chaste society today? 
1950s on the record books with the health department, four, four sexually transmitted diseases. Today, over 40. What has happened? 70 years has gone by. What happened? Sin, sin, sin. God judging sin. Consequences for sin. It's sin. One of the hardest things to do ever is to have a sexually pure society. A sexually moral society. And here's the amazing thing. Do you realize if we just listen, and I think I told you guys this before, we just listen to what God says, it all comes out fine. We'd, just be, we'd be just fine. Imagine relationships. In fact, did you guys, uh, you guys know, okay, they just got engaged. I know, so I was like, real excited. Yay, it's awesome. You know, I'm like, well, we want Pastor Steve to do the wedding, and, and we think about maybe helping tag team with that. So that's great. Like, do you require any marriage counseling? Oh, yes, I do. And why is that? Because we spend out of five sessions, two whole sessions talking about nothing but sexual purity. And I'll go ahead and tell you what I told them, because uh, I noticed they didn't stick around. Uh, so they've probably got a lot to talk about right now. They said, we're planning on getting married next May. I said, May of 2019? She said, yes. I go, hmm. And they said, what? I love it. Just be quiet, they ask. What? It's quite a long time. I mean, you guys are engaged. Now, I don't know about you, but think back to when you were young and virile, okay? But when the ring goes on the finger, your mind tells you, well, she's pretty much mine she's already mine well there's no harm well we're going to be married well it ain't no big deal it's a big deal to god it's a huge deal to god it's a massive deal to god so one of the reasons why we were late starting class is because i was lovingly and encouragingly exhorting them to make sure that sexual purity was of primary importance in their relationship because when the ring goes on the finger the game changes it's different. You can ask my wife. My wife and I uh, hung out as good friends for a month, dated for a month, got engaged, and four and a half months later, we were married. So in the period of six months, I went from single to married, okay? But she will tell you that in all the 16 and a half years of our relationship that we've had as marriage, uh, and if you want to count 17 years total as you count the dating time, okay? she will tell you that that four and a half months of engagement was the most horrible time of our entire relationship. And why is that? Because we knew that the Lord wanted us to be together and we weren't. That's what God wanted. I told him, I said, call me a radical, but I think you guys need to get married in a couple of months. And they were just... Big eyes, like, yeah, you're seeing clearly. I really just said that. I said, right now you might walk away and you might not want me to do anything with your marriage. I said, but I'm asking you to pray about it. Because you're playing with fire. You're playing with fire. I actually saw a scan. I have to find it sometime and bring it in, the picture of it that I found, where they took um, uh, the brain of somebody who had been in so much sexual indulgence and compared it to somebody, the, the, the scan, uh, one of those imaging scans that they do, the colors and everything, of somebody's brain who had been addicted to crack cocaine. And the one that has been involved in sexual impurity, pornography, and things like that, far worse shape than the cocaine, the brain affected by cocaine. Far more incapacitated. Because that's what operating apart from what God says does. Why do you think that neighbor's wife got put up to the forefront of everything that was going on? Because it started to be a problem. 
And here's the thing. What was, what was, the, what was the offense punishable by? We remember? Death. Stoning. Stoning. Now, we might hear, sit here and say, man, that's very barbaric. That's very cruel. How in the world could God ever command that? I'll tell you why. Because He takes sin seriously. And He communicates one stark point in that entire situation. Sin brings death. Now, here's the interesting thing. Did those people have to die? Did they have to die? No. All they had to do was keep their hands off of one another. All they had to do was that when they felt that pull pulling them in that direction was to confess that before the Lord, bring it to Him, and ask for God to intervene. Call out to the Lord to be delivered from such things. The Lord can do that. We just don't take advantage of everything He makes abundantly available to us. So we settle for, now what I really deserve in this situation is a stoning. Or how's this one? Well, they were just young and dumb and they just couldn't help themselves. And so in the throes of passion, all of a sudden she became pregnant. It's almost like somebody, like a rabbit in a hat kind of thing. All of a sudden, no, let me tell you how it happened. Let's diagram it real quick. She's not yours. He's not yours. You don't belong to one another. Now, how many people here have daughters? Raise your hand. Okay, now, Give me some of the words that describe the reaction. Knowing that some boy has had his hands on your daughter. Disgusting. The punch. Death. I love it. Tell me. What's that? Shotgun. Not taking away no Second Amendment here, right? Love it. Okay. Stand over here. I don't want to be anywhere near Roxanne right now. <laughs> but yeah. Thank you. We we get carnal quick, don't we? We get carnal quick. You don't touch my daughter, right? You don't touch my daughter. That's that's the attitude. And you know what? It's a good one. It's a godly one. Why would God's attitude about that be any different? I mean, isn't the believer in Christ? Isn't she a daughter of God? So what does God think whenever we put our hands on His daughter? See what I'm saying? What does God think whenever we've had our hands all over His Son? You think about that. That's how serious sexual sin is. And to put this at the forefront, to actually say, you know what? Moses needs to, and and he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses needs to rearrange the commandments in such a way as to where he recites neighbor's wife first, as opposed to when you heard it last time and it was down a list of things. No, let's put it up front. Don't miss little, 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 little changes like that. It's not that the Word isn't inspired. It's that as time went on, God is wanting to project a more emphasized point. Now, I want to I read something to you real quick. If you would, take this and put it in Deuteronomy 5. Okay, And I want to take you to Matthew 22. And we'll finish here. Matthew 22. Check, check, check. Did my, can you still hear me? Okay. Feels like the battery went out or something. Matthew 22. Look at verse 34. 
But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer. Now, a lawyer is not a guy who's taking a trial to court here. It's somebody who knows the law inside and out. Okay, It's somebody who is well-versed in, in the first five books. It says, a lawyer asked him a question, testing him. Here's a test for Jesus. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. Or if you've got a little little number there next to foremost, the first commandment. It's the first commandment. But notice what he says. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he makes a very profound statement, verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, at this time in the New Testament, when Jesus would make a comment using the phrase, the law and the prophets, he's probably talking about the entire summation of the the Old Testament revelation that we have. It all hangs on these two commandments. Now, take out your piece of paper and notice this. From verse 6 all the way down to 14. I'm sorry, 15. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 15. Those commandments right there can be summed up in one way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Those commandments from 6, verse 6, chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, verse 6 to 15 are all summed up in that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength right there. Flip over your paper and you find that Deuteronomy 16 through 21 is all wrapped up in the next commandment like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is Jesus doing in this moment? He is taking somebody who is well versed in the law and when he sought to test Jesus, Jesus is turning him back to the law. He is making the accusation or the the bear trap that he's trying to get his foot caught in or whatever that is uh, an inarguable conclusion. He is telling him, if you're asking me about this, which is the greatest, then you miss the point of all ten. Because they're summed up just like this. Love God with everything. And then love people like you love you. Very interesting to see that's how Jesus deals with the situation. Now here's what we're going to do next week. Are there any questions about that before we move on? We've got to wrap up here because we're getting ready to carry in food and all that fun stuff. Miss one what? He emphasizes the servants twice. You're correct, I did miss that. But I think the reason why I didn't bring that up is because at the end of 14, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well with you, that's an addition to what we saw in, in Exodus uh, 20, verse 10. So I was, I was emphasizing more of the addition, but you're right, they do bring it up twice. That last section is an added section. If you notice on the small paper that you have, next week we are going to talk about what the chiasm is as far as subject is concerned. And so what I'm going to ask you to do to study, because I know everybody's dying to get home and study this out, right? Is verses 6 through 21, the makeup of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, there is actually chiasms and subject. And notice that I've went ahead and given them to you. Verses 6 through 10, and then compare that with 21, and ask yourself the question, what subject do they have in common? What is the common subject? 
and then you move in to the next one. Uh, verses 11 and verse 20. What is the subject that they have in common? And that's what we'll pick up and we'll talk about next week when we get together. So let's pray. Father, thank You for the Word of God. Thank You that the ten words listed out to us, Lord, are profound. That they are emphatic, Lord. That they are by which every bit of unrighteousness is judged. Uh, because we see it such a lofty and high calling, Lord, we thank You for the pardon of the blood of Jesus that sets us free from sin because the law does nothing but convict us and condemn us lord it can only condemn thank you that jesus is the one who justifies us as righteous in your sight please bless our week please bless our time uh, and maybe looking over this chiasm spending some time in the word of god so that our minds will be further renewed we pray it in jesus name amen